Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. I heard about the ball game last night. 121 to 14. Must be pretty near record. What do you think he'd do if he found us? Shoot us, probably. But, Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> Don't be so mealy-mouthed. Sticklish business, any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Welcome back to a new episode of Ticklish Business. As you can tell, this is Kim again, and I am joined today by Samantha. Samantha, how are you doing today? Great, great. Excited to have this discussion. This is one that I've been meaning to cross off my list, and I know we'll get into all of the details of it. We are joined by a super duper special guest. We have writer Mark Harris on with us today. How are you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So thrilled to have you on. So tonight, what we are doing is, as most of you know, this has been a gut punch of a 2021 so far over the last couple of months. And we seem to be doing a lot of tributes for the last couple of weeks. And today we are doing yet another one. At the beginning of the year, we lost director Peter Bogdanovich. And today we're just going to sit down, talk about his career, talk about his work with a chaser of a discussion of his 1971 film, The Last Picture Show. So let's start out with that kind of nauseatingly broad, easy, open-ended question to the both of you. I'd love to just start with a discussion of your history, or I know Samantha brand new to Peter Bogdanovich's work and his career and just where you come at this episode from. Um, Well, for me, I really had not seen any work of his before watching The Last Picture Show today. There had been several movies of his on my watch list, this one included. Also, I'm very familiar with What's Up, Doc. I know a lot of people love Paper Moon. So his filmography by the names are definitely familiar. And I think even more familiar, as far as my connection to him goes, is his connection to classic cinema. It's obvious without even watching a film of his how deeply ingrained classic cinema was in his mind, in his actions, in his relationships with other people, other filmmakers. One of the main things that I had heard about him was each of his films is basically a love letter to old Hollywood. And so from that angle, it definitely interested me. And I had always wanted to see films of his, particularly The Last Picture Show, which from what I understand, and as I've now learned more than anything, is the love letter to old Hollywood. So I was excited to get into it. And I wasn't sure what I expected, but I know we'll we'll get into the discussion and our final thoughts and everything. But I think my main background with him is just... (laughs) I knew he loved old movies and I loved that. And I wanted to see some of his movies because of that, but hadn't gotten around to it until now. Similarly, I was always aware of his name and did the director version of typecasting, I guess, in the back of my head for a long, long time in my film background. And just thought of him as, of course, one of the titans of New Hollywood, but 
just a guy, a director, just, you know, did adult movies that I really didn't think too much about. And last year is when I started diving into his work. I had stumbled on a clip in the Dick Cavett show. It's him, Mel Brooks is in it, Robert Altman and Frank Capra. And it's widely available on YouTube kids out there. If you have not seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. And I fell in love with his manner, his demeanor, just how he talked about old Hollywood, just everything about it, which is what slowly had kind of plunged me into his work. And last year is when I ticked off Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc and Paper Moon and kind of drifted away as I'm prone to do. And then this year after his passing, I came back and to be perfectly honest, I have finished his feature filmography since his passing. So I quickly had decided and placed him as probably one of my favorite directors. And watching it through, I had no idea how much I would love his style, how much I would love what he brought, and wish I had gotten there sooner, to be perfectly honest. How about you, Mark? Well, you know, I saw a couple of his movies when I was a kid in real time, the ones that were kids suitable, which definitely did not include the last picture show. But, you know, he's so interesting. He's such a unique figure in New Hollywood and in Hollywood history, period, because it's really hard to place him in one category. Like, as you said, he started off not as a director, but as a film programmer, a film curator. If he were 25 years old now, he would be like a brash and annoying personality on film Twitter. You know, in 1968, what that meant was he was programming Hitchcock retrospectives at the Museum of Modern Art, or 1963, really. And then when you look at his work in the 70s, I mean, one thing that's hard to convey now is that he was already this kind of outsized personality in two different ways, depending on whether you were talking about the first half of the 1970s or the second half of the 1970s. And the first half, with that three-picture run of The Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon, he was really like at the top of the list of important American directors who were going to change the way Hollywood worked and, and the change the way Hollywood movies looked. And then in the second half of the 70s, he had this terrible run of like Nickelodeon and At Long Last Love and all, Daisy Miller and all this bad publicity that attached to his having left his wife for Sybil Shepherd, And his name became synonymous with flopping and synonymous with excess and synonymous with ego. You know, how could this guy who had flown so high, not once, but three times, have fallen so low so quickly? I, I think Billy Wilder made a joke that, you know, the only thing that could unite all factions in Hollywood was a Peter Bogdanovich flop. That's how bad things got for him. And then really for the rest of his career, every movie he made post 1979 was judged on this scale of like, is this going to be his comeback? Did he stick the landing? Is this another flop? Is he really going to come back this time? It's sort of as if the jury was out on that until, you know, for the rest of his career, for every movie he had that seemed to place him back in the spotlight. There was a long fallow period or a movie that didn't click at all with critics or a movie that, you know, was kind of a cult success with critics, but was barely released. 
you know, for someone who directed for what, 40 years at least, it's as jagged a career as you can possibly invent. Very much. And it's fascinating to look through just those peaks and valleys. I will admit, I'm a fan of At Long Last Love. As I jumped into that, those are especially that stretch, even Nickelodeon. I feel Nickelodeon is something that I don't think it worked in the form that it was in. I read some things that there might be a black and white cut out there. And throughout his career, what fascinates me with him is how influenced he was, how much he took that upbringing as a writer, as a programmer, as a kid who just loved movies, and how much he brought that to his work. And something like Nickelodeon, you see him really doing his darndest to try and tackle silent film stunts. A Long Last Love is a love letter to the Fred and Ginger movies. And right. watching those through now in 2022, I thought they were absolutely gorgeous. But then it's what fascinates me is thinking to how much PR played into it, because you're, compl- you're exactly right. The Polly Platt, Sybil Shepherd issue, how much of that affected his career, how much of that affected how his films were really, you know, received. It's such a complicated topic. Before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, MCF, and Rachel Kramarchuk. Our Patreon is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. A special reminder, if we can get up to 100 subscribers, we're looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in ticklish business circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to our goal, you'll hear all of our opinions on love story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Also, stay tuned for details on a special giveaway we're doing to coincide with the TCM Classic Film Festival. We're working with Breakfast at Dominique's to give away a special coffee prize pack. We'll have more details coming your way before the fest. Now, back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as recently as the Karina Longworth, you must remember this series on Polly Platt, and I really admire Karina, and I thought that series was wonderful. But it's so, it's so interesting to me, the number of people who listened to that and were just like, well, Peter Bogdanovich was a villain. I mean, it's the narrative in which he's a bad guy, even decades after, you know, the inciting incident is still very, very tempting. And he was certainly, you know, he was a really interestingly conflicted person as a director. I mean, he was a snob. There is no question who wanted to make really popular, you know, mass appeal movies. And he was someone who really adored old Hollywood. I mean, as you said, Nickelodeon is a tribute to the silence and and Long Last Love is a tribute to 30s movie musicals. And What's Up Doc is a tribute to the screwball comedy. And yet, and I guess we'll get into this later, in The Last Picture Show is also a movie that as lovingly crafted as it is, really wants to take a sledgehammer to what at the time were seen as pieties and sentimentalities about what real life was like in the 1950s and what small time life is like in the 1950s. 
it's a nostalgia movie in a way and his decision to shoot it in black and white is a way of cueing you that maybe you're going to get something more old-fashioned but it is a very not old-fashioned movie and and it has a great number of indicting things to say about the 1950s and about the stultifying nature of life in a small town so he was really he was interesting i mean he was He's a very complicated guy, even in terms of his own artistic impulses. I made the mistake of, you know, because followed the Karina's Polly Platt series. And to be perfectly honest, that was where I think that was what kept me from Bogdanovich's work for a long time. I can think back to my parents who were the ones who got me into film going, oh, he's a he's a jerk. He's a you know, he's an arrogant jerk. And so that always kind of hung over my head. And then it's been in the whirlwind of research that I'm doing. It's I'd read part of Sybil Shepard's book and all those interviews and that he said, she said, and that whole thing is just too complex for anybody to even get into to know what happened there. But it's truly amazing how he's been defined by that jerky persona. He was defined by that throughout it. I would say the rest of his career. And it seems like in clips that I read, people were excited to see him fail. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think th- there was definitely a feeling in the mid-1970s that he had flown too far, too high, too fast, and, and was really due for a crack-up. There's always been a sort of sadism in the general public's relationship to uh, movie success. We want people to succeed. We want people to go from triumph to triumph. We also really want to see them humbled as we narrativize their lives. You know, we want to see them fall sometime. And, you know, in fairness, you would have to say that Bogdanovich, I'm reminded of what Sean Penn said when he won one of his Oscars. He said, you know, I really do understand how difficult I make it to appreciate me sometimes. And I think that's absolutely true of Bogdanovich as well. But if you're going to do a deep dive into his filmography the way you did, first of all, you can't partition his life away from his work. I mean, I'm often really in favor of that to a degree because I always think that like a movie is no one person's work that that you can't put a movie on the sort of no fly list because, you know, the Last Picture Show is also part of Jeff Bridges's filmography and, of course, Leachman's body of work and of Larry McMurtry's body of work. So we have to think of it that way. But, you know, Sybil Shepard is all over his movies and the narrative of his rise and his fall is inextricably tied with Sybil Shepard. And that's not even getting into the whole, like, Dorothy Stratton period. It's really like he wore his life on his art very plainly, even in a kind of semi-jokey cameo, like in the Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind, where he was basically himself. He sometimes deliberately and sometimes inadvertently invited you to notice that stuff and to think about that stuff. So to really dive into his movies, and I'm fascinated that you went through the whole run of them, is a kind of complicated process of both knowing about that stuff and really sometimes having to put it aside and just try to watch the movie as cleanly as you can. Completely. And I was amazed that I'd never heard of They All Laughed. I vaguely was aware of the Dorothy Stratton tragedy, everything that that whole thing that went on there. And I've since dove into it a little bit more. But you're completely right. I mean, that through whether it the continual use of 
I guess, is muses, I guess, for lack of a better word, having, you know, going from Sybil Shepherd to, I just, I didn't even think of, I was reading an interview with him just today, preparing for this on They All Laughed. Uh, apparently Colleen Camp, you know, they Dorothy Stratton, he had injected right. so many of those women in there. So it's very difficult to ignore that personal life. And yeah, you're right. It completely, you have to kind of acknowledge it, but compartmentalize at the same time. Also, I think one thing that is not apparent when you just watch his movies as a filmography, but that was a really big part of his career is the tremendously hard time he had getting his movies seen after the end of the 70s. I mean, like they all laughed when I said, you know, everyone would kind of count the comebacks. They all laugh was definitely a a comeback. It was really nicely critically received, but it had a really limited release. Like it was not at all a release on the scale that even his flop movies had gotten released during the 1970s. And there were so many of those. I mean, I think probably with the exception of Mask, I mean, Mask was a really notable exception, but which was much more of a, like a job for hire than most of what he did. Although I think it's really lovely work. Most of his post-1970s movies had in one form or another a struggle to be seen. Either they were on the shelf for a long time and then came out, or they came out but only in a few cities, or they got kind of limited more art house releases. And, you know, those releases sometimes were before there was a real thriving indie movement or a template for how to release small American movies. So I think one thing that isn't necessarily apparent when you're watching all those movies is how much frustration must have built up in him over the decades where he's making movie after movie after movie and some of them are misses and some of them are critical successes, but nothing, not only is nothing really connecting with the public, nothing is even being given a chance to connect with the public. It's not getting enough of a release to connect with the public. And I think for someone who had had the level of success that he had, because, you know, The Last Picture Show was a huge critical success and a Best Picture nominee. And What's Up, Doc? and Paper Moon were big hits. I think it must have just been incredibly hard for him to live such a long stretch of his career as kind of the post-phenomenon phase. It's very reminiscent to me of John Cassavetes and Gina Rollins and their struggles to basically start the independent cinema movement while their feet were firmly planted in old Hollywood. Like they would make a popular studio system film and then they would use the money from that to finance their newest indie picture. And they weren't sure if it was going to be seen. And they sort of were around the same time as well. I imagine, you know, all of them in the seventies kind of were finding their footing in the new independent and also counterculture too. I feel like it really all weaves in With the end of the studio system, you also have a lot of these themes and a lot of different things on screen that weren't even allowed before. So they were really breaking new ground. Right. I mean, in a way, Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins had a cleaner time of it in that it was very, very clear what a John Cassavetes movie was. And it was largely like, you know, if he directed it and it was one of those movies it, what you were seeing, if you got to see it, was really what he wanted it to be. And probably the apex of that, the, the moment when it most 
dovetailed with mainstream success was a woman under the influence in 1974. And then, yeah, like when John Cassavetes would show up in a movie like Rosemary's Baby or The Dirty Dozen, like a big studio movie, he was clearly like getting some money to do his indie projects. But Bogdanovich, I mean, I think he saw himself as something of a renegade, something of an upstart, but he was kind of his intention was to kind of build a movie revolution from within. I don't think it was his first choice to work on the margins of Hollywood. I think had the seventies not gone up in flames for him, he would have been very happy if he had been allowed to, to continue being a studio director, if he could have done it on his own terms. And I think what pushed him toward smaller projects, which kind of defined the rest of his career was really just, practicality the fact that after three flops in a row studios would not give him money anymore like he couldn't make the movies he wanted to make and some of those late 70s i mean it it was not my favorite of the bunch but saint jack you can really see some really flashes of interesting stuff going on there and i will bang the drum for they all laughed all the time because you could really see the slapstick roots there do you think it's fair to say his friendship with Orson Welles, do you think he was that what he fancied himself? Well, it's hard to tell because, I mean, St. Jack, you, you're right to point that out. And that's probably chronologically the first comeback movie. And also, I think the first movie he made, I guess, since Targets, that was really outside of studio filmmaking. St. Jack was an indie before indie was really a Cat, a, a big enough category to to have a business model because that had what playboy money and corman money in it right all over the place i mean you could probably do like some weird tree of like who paid for peter bogdanovich movies from 1980 to 2010 and you know come up with a lot of really interesting answers but but yeah the wells question is a really interesting one because everybody would want to model their genius after Orson Welles. I think nobody would want to model their career after Orson Welles. It's weird that, and telling, I guess, that that Bogdanovich, who was fascinated by many, many directors, was particularly fascinated by Welles, who is the emblem of early success, followed by accusations of excess, followed by decades of struggle. I mean, he ended up having a Wellesian career, even though I don't think that's necessarily what he might have chosen for himself. So just a quick sum up. So Last Picture Show, made in 1971, follows the kids, the adults, kind of the residents of this small Texas town in the early 1950s. Peter Bogdanovich directed with uh, with a script he co-wrote with Larry McMurtry. The cast is a who's who of... I would say new Hollywood incredibleness just starting out. Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, Ellen Burstyn, Eileen Brennan, and Randy Quaid, to name a few. Let's talk about impressions. Samantha, what were your impressions on it, just seeing it for the first time? Well, this is definitely one that multiple people have urged me to see. It's one of those movies, there are quite a few that are pseudo old Hollywood. The most obvious example currently would be like The Shape of Water. Oh, if you like old movies, you'll like this. (laughs) Just that blanket statement, just because old movies appear or are referenced, I'm going to like the film. And 
going into it, I kind of had that mindset, almost a little bit negative of a negative mindset, like, okay, people are saying I'm going to like this, but I think just because old doesn't inherently mean I'm going to like it. But I did like, (laughs) I did. The thing that I noticed the most, and I didn't, I liked it more and more as I went on and more so after I watched it. But the thing that I liked the most is that it really puts up the counterculture and the grittiness and the realism of the 70s up against the pristine, the pure 50s. And that's one of the types of films that I really, really love. I'll give a couple more examples. Like, I love it when one decade covers another, but it's so thinly veiled that you can like sort of see through the cracks and you're basically seeing one decade through the lens of another decade. That's how this feels. And another example I love is Splendor in the Grass of 61, but it takes place in the 20s, but it's so obviously 20s in the 60s. Same with Funny Girl. It's so obviously 20s in the 60s. And those are two movies that I love. And I love this one for very similar reasons. It covers the 50s, but it covers a lot of what 50s movies didn't show or wouldn't show or couldn't show. And of course, a lot more natural performances. All of the dine and the chrome is taken off and you see the 50s or you're you're supposed to see the 50s for what they really were or could have been. And I think that that was really fascinating. Yeah, I think what you said, you know, it's the 50s movie that couldn't have been made in the 50s is really important. I mean, just to situate it in 1971 a little bit, I think two things about it that people should keep in mind are this was probably the first movie. I mean, up until 1966, any number of studio movies every year were made in black and white. Usually by the 60s, black and white was a choice about seriousness, about adultness. And although it may seem counterintuitive about realism, you know, it was the the vestige of this idea from the 40s that color was for fantasies and travelogues and biblical epics. Black and white was for something serious and contemporary. So by 1966, that kind of went away because everyone wanted color movies. So this coming five years later was the first major studio movie since then to use black and white as a like conscious artistic choice. There are quotes around the black and white in this movie. It's not, you know, it's a throwback to an earlier style of movie making, but it's a very 70s choice. It's saying we're doing this mindfully and we know that nobody does it anymore and we dare you to come sit and watch this black and white movie the other thing i think that's really worth keeping in mind when you watch the movie is that you have to remember that nudity in american movies was a kind of exciting new toy for directors it had really only been about two years since you could pretty much show what you wanted in an american movie And there's a lot of nudity in the last picture show. And it's kind of jolting to a viewer in 2022, because now when we think of like a lot of nudity, we think of like an HBO show like Euphoria. But it's pretty unusual to go to a kind of prestige American studio movie now and see a lot of nudity or a lot of casually topless actresses like that. 
doesn't happen so much anymore. So it can be jarring for someone who's coming upon The Last Picture Show for the first time to see all that. So I think it's kind of always useful to remember filmmakers were so excited to be able to do that. At every turn, there's nothing kind of nasty or vengeful about the movie, I think, but he does want to take this idea of idyllic life in a small town and tell you that in that small town, a boy with a mental disability was bullied and that people drank and that people had affairs and that women were both encouraged to sleep with men and ostracized and vilified for sleeping with men. Like all of the things that someone in the 1970s would have found stultifying and infuriating about the 1950s, a decade they all grew up in, are on display in this movie and are part of the texture of it. We think of the word nostalgic, you know, for anything that is set in the fairly recent past, but there's actually very little nostalgia for either the 1950s or for small town life in The Last Picture Show. It doesn't seem great. It doesn't seem like something you would ever want to go back to. And it's kind of shocking because it's only set 20 years before it was made. I think if we watched a movie now that was set in 2002, other than different technology, I'm not sure the mores would seem all that different to us than today, but by 1971, 1951 felt like it was 50 years ago. And that's something you really feel in the movie. Exactly. That was one of the things that surprised me the most when I watched this. I really did put it in that perspective while I was watching. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, I'm imagining watching this in 1971 as if I'm watching something made in 2002 now. And I can't imagine it. I really can't. I can't imagine it being such a different world so short of a time before that. And it was really shocking. And you're right. It definitely does hold a light to a lot of the double standards back then and a lot of what was wrong about the 50s. And it really tears. I think it's the perfect inclusion in the counterculture movement because it perfectly tears down all of the ideologies of the 50s and the purism of the 50s, as I was mentioning before. Right. And it does that with the sort of determination and cold anger about it that only somebody who lived through the 50s themselves could have experienced. I think probably if we were to make a movie about the 50s now, it might be more balanced in a way or or, or people might express more compassion. Although I think The Last Picture Show is a compassionate movie. But I think culturally, I think we generally tend to be more angry about the fairly recent past than we are about the distant past, because 20 years is an uncomfortable time gap. You know, 60 years is not such an uncomfortable time gap. Then you're making a period piece, you know, but 20 years, you're making a movie about a time that a lot of your adult target audience lived through and remembers very vividly a time that you remember very vividly. I don't think most of the audience for The Last Picture Show was super young, despite its young cast. I think probably, like, if you were in your 30s or 40s, you knew very clearly what Bogdanovich was talking about and what he was going after. And Larry McMurtry, we should say, too, because this is very much his creative vision as well. Tackling something so recent, it picks its scabs. 
to draw a contemporary comparison, Pam and Tommy or the Pamela Anderson series going on now, it's so relatively recent in pop culture that you remember, you remember the biases that you had. I know that's what I've been facing with something like that. And you go, oh, did I think that? Did we do that? And it's so easy to lose perspective now. And I think we're still so guilty in our culture of defining the 1950s as sitcom suburbia, you know, white picket fence. And we forget just the sheer complexity that was going on there. In the 1950s themselves, there's any number of movies and novels that are really pushing against that white picket fence thing. You know, it's not like people in the 50s were not interesting or complex or or fighting this stuff. But, you know, I was really interested that you mentioned Pam and Tommy, because the one thing you have to say about The Last Picture Show is it does what it does without any kind of overt irony or smirking. It's actually a very heartfelt, you know, you really understand a lot about like what Cloris Leachman's character is feeling and what Timothy Bottoms's character is feeling. And, and even at moments, what Sybil Shepherd is feeling, it, it extends great compassion to all of the people in the movie. It doesn't distance itself from the period it's depicting by being jokey or smirky or ironic. And I think that's much easier go to culturally now than it was 50 years ago. It makes me feel like this could have actually happened. It really does. And I think we get such a skewed view of the 50s specifically. I think for me, the only things that I'm super familiar with from the 50s are movies from the 50s, which were heavily under production code and were super sanitized, or old Hollywood biographies of the 50s, which do include swear words and sex scenes and things like that, but it's on paper. So I feel like this film to me is the perfect combination of what I've read about the 50s with the visuals of the 50s. So did it make you want to see more Peter Bogdanovich movies? I absolutely want to see What's Up, Doc, just regardless. I need to see more of Barbara Streisand's acting, I think, just in general, because Funny Girl is in my top four favorite movies ever. So I'm definitely going to watch that one. As far as the rest of his work, one that I didn't point out earlier that I definitely have the interest in for obvious reasons is The Other Side of the Wind. I consider that, to a large extent, a Bogdanovich film. I think depending on how I feel about those two is whether I'm going to dip my toe into the rest. But I've always been very interested in his life. And as a true crime fan, in addition to an old Hollywood fan, of course, I've heard all about Dorothy Stratton and his connections with that. And I mean, he just led a super fascinating, super varied, super cultured life. and. I'm definitely curious. I think that's just the best way to put it. (laughs) If I can nudge you gently toward one more, I would really say don't miss Paper Moon. That probably stands next to The Last Picture Show as just his most purely successful, popular work. It's another period piece. It's the Depression, not the 50s. 
It's black and white. It's beautifully made. The acting holds up exquisitely. I mean, you know, Tatum O'Neill genuinely is fantastic. Ryan O'Neill, it's probably his best performance. Madeline Kahn, one of the great comic performances of all time. It's really, really lovely. And, you know, it makes a great case for him. I haven't seen any Ryan O'Neill yet, but I think it's one of those people. I look at his face and I'm like, I feel like I would like a movie of yours. (laughs) I just haven't seen you yet. Like, I know Love Story is a very controversial topic on this podcast. (laughs) I still have not seen that either. (laughs) But I don't know. I looked at him and I'm like, he gives me dime store Robert Redford vibes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's definitely overlap. And if you watch Paper Moon and What's Up Doc, you'll get a double dose of him. I think I need to set that up this year. I think I'll have to make that a goal to not only brush up on my Bogdanovich, but to brush up on my Ryan O'Neill apparently. (laughs) Samantha, I have to say, knowing you as I know you, and I have to plug it because it was the first one that got me going on this current stretch. I have to press targets as That's right. That is right. I forgot that that was him. He has that kind of filmography where I go through and like, I didn't even know until you just mentioned it, that he directed Mask, which I have seen parts of, but it's just such an out of left field thing. And, but I guess you could say that about a lot of his movies. <laughs> he, he doesn't necessarily have a formula all yeah. the time. No, that's definitely true. And, and Targets is a great, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a great choice. And it's, it's like an amazing calling card movie. It's a Look what I can do with exactly. no money and almost no resources and almost no time movie. And it's still like, I can't put that out of my mind when I watch it, but it's almost like more fun to have that in my mind when I'm watching it. I love to think of it the because I've been kind of on a Corman tear lately. And just hearing that part of that was Corman going, I've got Boris Karloff for two days. You need to use Boris Karloff and make him work for two days. <laughs> right. I can't believe that sounds like a Bogdanovich story just right there. But obviously, Kim made a very educated suggestion, too, because she knows how much I love Boris Karloff. My feet are firmly planted in the 1930s. It is very difficult for me to watch movies like that. My foot would probably not even be in the door if you didn't tell me that there were like scenes from Father of the Bride and Red River and stuff like that. So if you dangling the carrot in front of me by saying that he worked with Carla. (laughs) Well, if your foot is firmly planted in the 1930s, then you have to watch Paper Moon. Exactly. exactly. Well, I guess that Long Last Love is his 30s movie, too. But Paper Moon is his popular 30s movie. (laughs) Paper Moon is the one people liked. Yeah, yeah. I get the Bogdanovich bug. Who knows? (laughs) The jury is still out. I mean, I do know that I really enjoyed The Last Picture Show. I Again, I think just scene to scene, I was kind of meh about it. But I think looking at the entire thing and what it was able to accomplish and what it wanted to accomplish, I definitely see and appreciate the vision. I, again, I I love the realism and I love the fact that it looks at the fifties in a non-judgmental, but realistic way. 
Yeah, and I think the second time through, if you watch it again, where you know who all the characters are and you get that it's kind of going to be this delicately woven episodic structure where you're not trying to figure out so much who's who and how do they relate to each other and who's the main character of this? Oh, there isn't one. Okay. Like, you can just really enjoy all of the small moments, the the performance nuances, the beautiful shots, the way, for instance, Bogdanovich and McMurtry set up that affair between Timothy Bottoms and Cloris Leachman. If you know it's coming, like, you can almost appreciate it even more. I mentioned this because we've discussed the film on the podcast before, but it feels like an uncut version of Peyton Place. <laughs> <laughs> This well, is like Peyton Place without any of the production code involved. And and I definitely appreciate that. I can get my teeth into something really juicy with a lot of interwoven characters. And I mean, you could argue for a lot of these characters being the main character. I would probably say that Sonny is. Right. But, uh, but you can make an argument for any of them. And there's also, I mean, it's really interesting. If it's Peyton Place, then it's Peyton place made by someone who is saying what if we took these events that are very important and dramatic in the lives of these characters and presented them just at kind of human level without any attempt at melodrama or theatrics or or kind of large-scale douglas Sirkian, you know emotions if, if we just did it at this kind of naturalistic human level how would that change the storytelling and how would it change the way people look at these characters and relate to them exactly i've always viewed this one it feels so much out of a little the movement of films i'm never quite sure what to call it but i'm convinced it's under discussed that wave of like character Indie-ish, not indie's not the right word, but those character pictures you got mid to late 50s, right as television was coming out, Bachelor Party, Marty, very black and white, very gritty. They ripped off a lot of the pretense there. There was something in Hollywood at that point. This is Peyton Place through that lens, you know, without the the studio pretty, like you said, the Douglas Sirkin melodrama. Right. It's and funny again, that it's you only... mentioned Marty because that's like one of the first independently produced films too. I mean, you could definitely make an argument for that because Burt Lancaster produced that film basically out of pocket. And he added that realism and that black and white when black and white didn't necessarily need or wanted to be used. So I, I, I think that's a really great comparison. And Peyton Place was like 57, I think. So 14 years, it's such a tiny amount of time for the culture to go through this wormhole almost it, it comes out a galaxy away from where it was in 1957 and the last picture show is sort of one of the first products of that moment there is sort of a steady decline of the production code and rise in the sexual revolution that led to it but if you pick out any one film from the 60s to put up against the last picture show it's still so different right so so different well that feels like a good way to take us out mark where can if people are looking to find you online find your work you know what can they dive into oh gosh i, I would say my 
Books are a good place to go. You can read Pictures at a Revolution if you want to understand how we got from 1957 to 1971, because it's about what happens right in the middle of that. Or my book, uh, my biography of Mike Nichols, which is called Mike Nichols of Life, is out in stores and in paperback now. And I'm on Twitter at Mark Harris NYC, like New York City. And I show up sometimes on Vulture, sometimes in the New York Times style magazine, you know, here and there, whoever will have me. Mike Nichols deserves all the love. So I have to say, yeah, I think that book was amazing. Well, that is going to wrap up this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Help us out and leave us a review. As every other podcast will tell you, those reviews do matter. We are available across all the social medias, but we do spend most of our time on Twitter, Instagram, and give us a visit on YouTube, why don't you? Please like and subscribe if you feel so inclined. As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We are looking to get 100 subscribers on Patreon. If we get that, subscribers will be treated to a deep dive into a rather infamous movie in ticklish business circles, Love Story. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Help us out and hear our opinions. Trust me, there's lots of them. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site. And Chris and I will have some bonus content coming your way very soon. Be sure to check out our website at ticklishbiz. That's ticklishbiz.com. I am forever brainstorming new content, and you should be able to navigate over there now and check out our expanded discoveries posts where we talk about everything we didn't have enough airtime to discuss. As always, we'll be back with a new episode soon. Till then.